0: Good morning everyone. As Alex said, my name is Amanda. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, um, I am the associate pastor here at Midtown, and it's just an honor to be a part of this community very thankful for each and every one of you. Um, Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And uh, today we get to continue our message and our series on the book of Colossians. And before we get into today's passage, I do want to remind us our three things to remember as we go through this series on the book of Colossians. The first is that this is a letter written to a young church by the Apostle Paul. Second, Paul advances in this letter the idea that Christ began a new kingdom. And third, spiritual maturity is learning to live in that new kingdom. In this portion of the letter today that we're studying, Paul is addressing the church's syncretism, that is the combining of national beliefs and other religions with that of the gospel of Jesus. Paul is writing to address the Colossian believers' temptation to conform to Hellenistic Jewish practices. At the time, there were Jews that had taken on mystic beliefs and claimed to be able to capture the presence of God without reliance on Christ. And it's likely that some of the Colossian believers were attempting to incorporate some of these practices into their Christian faith. This is to say that for the Colossian church and for us, our greatest temptation is not towards apostasy or abandoning our faith. It's not even towards outright immoral or unethical behavior. Our greatest temptation is to believe the subtle lie that Christ is insufficient. And this is a temptation that if we're honest, we have all felt at one point or another. In fact, a Barna study in 2020 shows that 90 of Americans have a syncretistic worldview, meaning that it's a worldview that's blended, cut and paste to suit whatever individual sees best. The study goes on to say that millennials are significantly less likely than other generations to believe in the existence of an absolute moral truth or that God is the basis of that truth. Lastly, the study shows that compared to other adults, millennials are substantially more likely to wonder if God is really involved in their life, to believe that there is no absolute value associated with human life, and to believe that having faith matters more than which faith you have. And as a millennial, I have to confess, I have been faced with these questions and struggled with these same questions of faith in my life How do we know whether the ideas that we have have been formed by culture or by our faith? How should my faith inform my view of culture? As humans, we tend to absorb things, and as much as we don't like to admit it, we are an easily influenced being. Over time, we begin to compare ourselves. We take on the attributes of those that we hang out with. We take on the ideas of what we listen to from music, books, movies, TikTok. Y'all ever get a sound clip stuck in your head? I wake up with one every day in my mind, every day. It seems so innocent, but in reality, all of these little things are constantly reshaping our worldview. So we have to ask ourselves, Is this the view of reality that Jesus would have if he were here today in our place? And while there's no such thing on this side of reality in eternity as a purely Christian worldview, the point isn't perfection. The aim is to be as much like Jesus in the 21st century America, that's where we're at, as possible. And this tension is what Paul is addressing today. He's talking about the two major influences on the Colossian church, and he's trying to reassure them that Christ is their hope. And these two major influences that Paul is pointing out are that of Jewish Christians and Hellenistic Jews. So he starts off in verse 16 by addressing the Jewish Christian influence on the Colossians. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a sabbath. And for context, this verse is actually starting off by referring to verse 15 and Alex talked about that last week where Paul is explaining that Christ is victorious over all the rulers and authorities in this world. And they tr- those rulers and authorities tried to disqualify the gentiles from Christ. But because Christ had victory, Paul instructs them that they need not allow individuals to pass judgment on them. These judgments from the Jewish Christians were one that deemed them excluded from the body of Christ for not following Jewish law. Paul isn't abolishing the laws and the practices there saying that if you do these, then you aren't saved. But what Paul is saying is that these practices are no longer an indication of or a means to secure righteousness and faith in salvation. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish law, so the Church of Colossae no longer needs to follow these rules. Paul goes on to say in verse 17 that these are actually just a shadow of the things to come, and that the substance belongs to Christ. He's communicating that in the Old Testament, God revealed himself— to his people via promises and prophecies, and every Old Testament law was pointing to Jesus. They were a shadow of what was to come. But now, God reveals himself through his son, Jesus, the substance. So while the promises and the prophecies, the diets and the laws, had a meaningful purpose, they were a means to an end and not an end within themselves. And by focusing on them now that we have the end, they are useless. And they actually are a misprioritization of our life. It's not the law first, Jesus second. It's Jesus first, law second. The point was always Jesus. Paul goes on to address the mystic teachings of the Hellenistic Jews next in verses 18 and 19. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his senses mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Now to understand these verses, we do have to look a little further into the historic context to know what's happening here. First, scholars agree that asceticism and angel worship were both practices of mysticism in the area. And let me preface that to say that mysticism is not inherently bad. It is practiced even today by some Christians. The whole goal of mysticism is to have a deeper knowledge of God, which sounds great, we should want that. But in the historic context here, mysticism also taught that union with a deity or acquiring full spiritual truth, or reaching some ultimate reality was only obtained through subjective experiences like meditation or self-surrender as done through asceticism. And for the Colossians, these mystic teachings likely came from Hellenistic Jews. That is, those who had combined Jewish tradition with Greek culture. There's that syncretism. So Paul is confronting that syncretism, being imposed on the Colossians as deceptive and not rooted in Christ. In the historical context here, mysticism began with ascetic practices. And what those ascetic practices were, the purpose was severe self-discipline and avoidance of indulgences. Typically, these actions were done for the purpose of religion. Examples would include sleeping on hard beds, Whipping oneself, having a prolonged fast, like greater than 40 days, I'm talking, really not having some food. Asceticism is a form of self-made religion. And while it tries to dampen our desires, it actually increases them. As author R. Kent Hughes puts it, he says, asceticism feeds the flesh by starving it. And addressing asceticism and angel worship is to address participation in something that seems holy, but is bordering on idolatry. But mystics claimed that these ascetic practices would lead to new levels of spirituality, and that once you reach these new levels, you would then have visions where you're lifted to the heavens for worship. Scholars are a little torn here on whether the translation should be that they were lifted to heaven to worship the angels, or they were lifted to heaven to worship with the angels. But either way, Paul makes it clear that he is condemning this practice. Because the mystics then taught that after you were reaching the heavenly realms, you would come back and you would tell of all that you saw, sharing your visions, And all of these instructions from the Jews and the mystics seemed holy and wise at first, but Paul calls them out and says they are actually self-indulgent. Mysticism promised a new level of spiritual knowledge and closeness to God. If only you would just obey these rules and have these experiences. Asceticism's whole purpose was to restrain to make yourself holy. Yet in actuality, you're indulging your flesh separating from yourself from God, taking it into your own hands. Legalism leads us to a surface faith that is shallow and self-righteous. A belief that results in joylessness and uniformity, absent of all of the uniqueness of who God made you to be. Jesus is the source of our growth and maturity. But the mystics and the Jewish leaders in the area we're teaching, that their source of growth came from diet, Holy Day observance, if they had visions or have had these experiences of higher spirituality. And as as Alex spoke last week, we must be cautious of what teachings we allow ourselves to be led by. Because the teachings can be empowered not just by human tradition, but by being hostile to the way of Jesus. We have to be cautious. And the point that Paul is making is that it's not visions themselves that are bad. It's not even angels themselves that are bad, but it's the place in our lives and our hearts that make them bad. And the focus on acquiring visions makes Jesus secondary. And Paul is saying anything that makes Jesus secondary is idolatry. And when we make secondary things primary, we not only detach ourselves, from the body, we are stopping our maturity. So what does it look like today in 21st century America to add things to Christ? There are really three ideas and worldviews that reflect this and there are three dominant worldviews that influence the church in America today. The first one is that of Christian performance culture. Now this is the culture of the church in the U.S and the standards that we hold not only ourselves to, but we start to place on other people. And the core desire of this worldview is to be more like Jesus in all of his perfection and all of his characteristics. In this desire, we create boundaries that draw us closer to Jesus, which can be so beneficial. But it's when we start to make those boundaries the source of salvation in our lives That it becomes an issue. Examples of this worldview includes judging what other people are listening to or watching, judging someone based on whether they practice Lent or not, having some sort of spiritual superiority complex based on what denomination you're a part of. What gifts of the Spirit do you have? Who are you hanging out with? Do you have more Christian friends than non-Christian friends? Caring more about your reputation as a good Christian to the point that it interferes with your ability to love and speak the truth in love. These are all ways that we judge one another in our holiness. We start to rank people. I'm holier than you. You're holier than them. Just like the Jews judge the holiness of the Colossians based on their diet and their holy day observance. And it's these type of judgments that are an indicator to us that we have added Christian performance to Christ, which not only warps our view of others, but it begins to warp our view of our faith in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of us might need to re-examine what we're watching and what we're listening to might need a little challenge in there, but these challenges should always be done for the purpose of building you up in Christ, not making you to conform to my standard, not making you conform to my rules and practices. Imposing our self-made rules on others as the way to Jesus is exactly what Paul is confronting in this text. The second worldview that influences the church in the U.S. is that of New Age thought. So this worldview has connections in Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, and oftentimes it adopts a belief in spiritual authority of self, meaning I make things happen, I control my own destiny. The core desire of this worldview is to reach an ultimate truth, which, again, this is a desire that is good and genuine. It's okay to desire that. But it's when the search for truth becomes spiritual wandering, formed from cherry-picking beliefs, we find ourselves deeming Christ insufficient. Common beliefs and practices that are birthed from New thought, new Age thought include karma, crystals, meditation, astrology and zodiac signs, psychics, Spiritual energy or manifesting, it's a vibe. Anybody heard that? (laughs) Reincarnation, tarot cards, palm readings, speaking with the dead is done through Ouija boards, the list goes on. And while this worldview is seemingly the least judgmental of the three that I'm presenting today, it doesn't mean that it poses no danger on our path to spiritual maturity in Christ. In fact, one of the dangers of this worldview is that of universal acceptance and tolerance that are void of discernment. These practices and languages are so ingrained into the U.S. culture that it can be genuinely hard to know if you have adopted some of these beliefs. And again, if you find yourself absorbing different truths or with a collection of cherry-picked ideas, in a space of spiritual wandering, it might be a sign that you have exchanged truth for a spirituality that is self-made. And it's the subtle absorption of these beliefs that Paul is talking about here. The last worldview that impacts the US church is that of the idol of political party. Yeah, uh uh-oh, uh-oh is right. No, this worldview is one that fuses Christianity with your political party. It places the political party as the source of power in your life. And that's to say that your political party is one that will either save you or damn you. The core desire of this worldview is actually to see human flourishing, believe it or not. This desire is one that's pure and loving, but when you're more committed to your political party's platform than you are to the way of Jesus, you have exchanged his vision for your party's vision. And this isn't a condemnation of political involvement. We should be involved. But the subtle temptation to place your hope in your political party instead of Jesus Oftentimes, this worldview looks like judgment over what news channels you're listening to, what political party you're affiliated with. It can sound like, how could you vote this way? You obviously aren't a Christian. It looks like a people like us mentality. This worldview frequently desires conformity, not just to Christianity, but Christianity wrapped in an American flag. And that flag must be imposed on people. And while this worldview seems the most blatant, it too begins with a subtlety of everyday temptations to see Christ as insufficient and in need of our additions. Political anxiety is a good indicator that you've bought into this idol of political party. And each of these three worldviews breeds its own type of superiority and exclusivity. And just like the influences on the Colossian church, they hold no actual power to transform us, and they cut us off from the head. They cut us off from Christ. And just like the Colossians, we are a mixed bag of influences, but when we follow Christ, we are progressively influenced in his direction. All of these things are trying to add to the gospel, but in reality, it's just Jesus. Our job is to repent and to learn to live in his kingdom. A quick point on learning to live in the kingdom. Now, Paul is obviously not saying that once we're saved, we need no further instruction. We can just go on our way. If he was saying that, we wouldn't be here studying this letter. Plenty of the New Testament is actually dedicated to that exact thing, teaching us how to live a life following Christ. But these are not a source of our salvation. These are expectations of our behavior as we follow Christ, once we've accepted salvation. And the only way to get to that place of instruction is repentance and acceptance of Jesus. Paul is trying to reassure the Colossians here that they need not listen to these additions. You are not more loved by the Father because you obey more or because you've had this experience over someone else. But equally, you are not less loved by the Father because you disobey more or because you haven't had an experience. Scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, the church need look nowhere else for forgiveness of the past, for maturity in the present, and for future hope. It's just Jesus. Worship team, if you could come back up. Paul goes on in verse 20 to say, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Why submit to Christian performance culture? Why submit to New Age thought or to your political party when we've been set free from this? Christ's death and resurrection provide us freedom from all of these things, and they give us a new life. And with this new life, we have new desires, and we have the Holy Spirit who helps us align our desires with those of God. We have scripture that we're instructed to test all things too in order to help us walk in those instructions. I love this quote from Martin Luther. He says, The sin underneath all our sins is the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and that we must take matters into our own hands. We can trust God. We don't have to take things into our own hands and then force them on other people. Eugene Patterson summarizes today's passage in this way. He says, do you think things that are here today and gone tomorrow are worth that kind of attention? Such things sound impressive if they're said in a deep enough voice, They give the illusion of being pious and humble and austere, but they're just another way of showing off, making yourself look important. The Colossians were tempted to believe that they did not belong, that they needed to be pious and humble and austere. They were tempted to believe that Christ was insufficient, and we too are faced with that same temptation. Let's not fall trap into believing that we aren't free and that we don't belong. Christ has made us free. He has given us a family. We have an inheritance that cannot be bought. It's just Jesus. There's no additions. There's no subtractions. It's not Jesus wrapped in an American flag or Jesus wrapped in good vibes, wrapped in the gifts of the Spirit or even in good Christian ethics. It's not even Jesus wrapped in the things that I like and the things that I don't. We don't get to create a new faith because we like what Jesus said here, but not what he said there. And we like what Buddha says here and what my friend says here. We don't get to cherry pick. Paul makes it clear that when we do that and we combine beliefs and practices and we choose our own adventure, we're creating something with no power no end. Something that has not growth nor transformation. It's not Jesus plus, but it's not Jesus except either. It's just Jesus. And once we understand this, our job is to respond in repentance and to live in his kingdom. So how do we know? How do we know if our priorities are disordered? How do we identify? if we've given in to the subtle temptation to add to Jesus. It starts with identifying our influences. Earlier I spoke of three dominant worldviews that influence the US church, Christian performance culture, new age thought, political party idolatry. And as I close out today and we go into some time of prayer and reflection, I challenge you to identify which of these three areas you might be struggling with. Maybe you're adding them to Jesus. Maybe you're putting them above Jesus. Maybe you've consumed, you're consumed by the nuanced standards that you've placed on yourself or that others in the church have placed on you. Maybe you find yourself relying on you instead of Christ or practicing and saying things that express something that is so contrary to the Christian faith, but yet so subtle. Maybe you struggle with Jesus wrapped in an American flag. And you struggle to see Jesus as separate from America. Maybe you struggle to see people in the eyes of Jesus instead of in the eyes of your political party. Maybe you have your own struggle to identify But we have to ask ourselves, what is influencing me? And what is it influencing me towards? Is it influencing me to be more like Christ or to be more like the world? We are a mixed bag of influences. But when we follow Christ, we are progressively influenced in his direction being a disciple of Jesus, following the way of Jesus, is a progressive process of learning to be influenced by Jesus. It's a process. It's not about perfection. It's about a commitment that aims to look more like Jesus every day.